and we'll dismiss our kids, or are we dismissing our kids? Yes, we are. Bye. See you later. This past week, Stella said, uh, and I have to give you some context, Shelby goes to Bible study about four times a week. And uh, she said, uh, when I when I get big, I'm going to go to Bible study like Shelby. And then she says, "What's a what's Bob? What do you do at Bible study?" <laughs> so I just told her she had to go to Bible study. She says, "No, uh." Well, I don't know. This first. Uh, Chapter in Acts has a lot to teach us, and sometimes we we look at it and we think, well, it's just preliminary to chapter 2, and that's true, because the main event begins in chapter 2. And we all know that, because we've read the story. I mean, we understand that what happens in chapter 2 is the birth of the church, and the Spirit descending upon the church in a way that was new and fresh, that had never happened before in the history. So we understand from our vantage point that this was the beginning and it was a it was a bursting forth really of what God intended to do through the life of his people but they didn't have that perspective and i think sometimes we read and we think well they know all the story and we don't really allow the the story to unfold and speak to us in the way that it might and so today as they don't really know what they're approaching we do And we also understand that what was experienced in chapter 2 was meant for the experience of the life of the church all through history till this very day. And we also know that we don't experience our life with the Spirit in such a way. And we know that the church does not function with the same high degree of success as it did at this very moment that it was brought into life. We also know that we need it to function that way because the world is in worse shape than it has ever been. I don't say that as hyperbole. We're in a different place today than we've ever been. And I don't mean to speak like I'm a prophet of, of, I know things, but I do know this. When we begin to treat God's Word and all that that meant for people, when we begin to treat that in a, in, in at best, a, just a, a neutral, antiseptic way, things begin to go south really in a big hurry. And, and what's amazing is that we saw that happen in other countries. Nikki and Victor could give testimony to some of what life is like in a country that has no God. We can't, really. Most of us can't. We had, we had ways to look at other places and say, if we go that way, it's going to be disastrous. And yet we've still gone that way, just not for the same reasons. And so we constantly hear people say, We need a revival in our land. And the truth of it is we're going to discover that all we need is a revival in our hearts. In a church just like this one. 
And God can move mountains through that. We don't have to wait on anybody. We don't have to wait for anyone else's heart to be moved by God. Do you know that? We just have to respond to the God that is calling out to us, that it loves us, that is at work around us, and to open our hearts and open our lives to Him. And indeed, we can have what Acts 2 is all about. This little section gives us some clues as to how we can help make that happen for us. And so I, I pray that you'll listen today. And there's, there's three things that I'm going to really go over here. One is prayer. Man, how many of you started the day in, in prayer? Don't raise your hand because some of you are not going to tell the truth. Because everybody's going to want to raise their hand and say, yeah, the first thing I did today was pray when you didn't. I know that. You know that. It's not the first thing I did today either. I got in the shower first thing this morning. I didn't sleep good last night, so I went straight to the shower, woke up my wife. She had to get up. She made the coffee. The day didn't start like it normally does, but I did get around to praying this morning. Prayer, we're going to find out, was very important to these people before God was ever made his move. Okay? Prayer might have been the trigger. We don't know. All we know is that they prayed. We're going to talk about prayer. The other is, they had some real disappointment going on amongst these, these 12 or 11 followers of Jesus. And that, that disappointment and that defection, so, so to speak, of what Judas did really pained them. And we've got to find ways to get over that when it happens in our church. Because too often, people come and people go and things happen. And, and, and people get their feelings hurt and they become bitter and all that does is stifle the spirit and we gotta we gotta learn how to deal with those situations in our churches today because they happen all the time and churches can really become impotent when we allow for for the misunderstanding of relationships to get in the way of what the spirit wants to do and then finally we're going to look at um thankfully i have my notes today i didn't last week did he could anybody tell all right good i'm from don't know how, but I picked up the wrong ones. And then we're going to look at decision-making in the church and how the way that we choose to make decisions has the ability to stifle or unleash the Spirit in the life of our church. So there's three areas we're going to look at today. And all of them relate to this one passage. When we get to verse 14 in chapter 1, he says there's, there's some really, there's some key words in here that we want to look at. It says they were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I want to make a little side note here before I go any further. Women, it's okay for you to pray out loud in church. Men, it's okay for you to pray out loud in church. Too often, in our, especially in our staunch Southern Baptist and sometimes fundamental culture, it's been believed that women should not pray in church but here we find again along with about 47 other uh, references in the New Testament that women were standing and leading in their churches praying and doing other things we all come together to pray there is not a citizen in this fellowship that has a higher rank than the other myself included there is Christ the head and there is his church 
And I'm encouraging you to offer your prayers. We need to hear one another pray together. We need to hear your voice vocalize what God has placed upon your tongue. Each and every one of you. In this it says, everyone together, the men, the winner, the women, the, the leaders, and all the believers, they were in a group prayer. It says they were continually this way. It means that they are of, of one mind. They had one passion going on here. When it says that they are together, continually, <clears throat> excuse me, they were continually united in prayer. The united here is too soft of a word, really. It's, it's, this, it's, it's creating this idea that they were enmeshed with one another. They could not separate their passions and desires as to what they were praying for. Do we know what they were praying for? Absolutely not. God does this wonderful thing to tell us not what they were praying about, but how their prayer was, was interacting and, and uniting the church together. They were of one mind and of one passion about these things. They were praying constantly or persistently. Now, the word persistent is better. Praying with obstinance is even better. Praying constantly is easy. We could get together and we could say, okay, we're going to have a 24-hour prayer time at this church. And somebody start at 6 in the morning and there'll be somebody here and they pray for an hour. And then 23 other people follow and we've... We've been in continual prayer, but that's not what this is about. This means that they were all together, and then this is what happened. Somebody would have to go out and draw water for their master because he doesn't know how to draw water. Only slaves draw water. So they would rush off and go do their daily duties, and then they would come back and get back to this business of praying together because the prayers that they were offering was so important to their lives. They didn't know what was going on. Jesus just told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait. And in the midst of waiting, they decided we, we ought to pray. And this prayer, this, this commitment to prayer turned into something else to where they were obstinate about their prayers. You couldn't have made them stop praying if you'd have tried. That's what that means. Anybody ever had any obstinate children? Okay. They're going to do it their way no matter what. You can see it bubbling up in their eyes when they're getting ready to, too, can't you? That's the kind of praying that they were doing. There was, there was, it was going to defy anything that tried to stop it. When was the last time that you met with people and you prayed that way? I would say never. Prayer takes time. It takes commitment. It takes time and it takes commitment. And it also takes time and it takes commitment to do this with one another. That's what they were doing. <clears throat> they were in the upper room. Most people think that's John Mark's house. <clears throat> we don't know, but 120 people could fit in there. All right, this room holds 120. That, that There wasn't many rooms in Jerusalem that held, that were this big. So these people were not comfortable in this room. They were jammed into this room praying. If you had a, if a room half this size with 120 people in it, you're pretty intimate. And everybody can hear one another pray. And they would hear each other pray and it would cause them to pray. 
and this, this feeding of one another. They're offering to God, seeking Him out, asking for what He wanted from their lives now that Jesus, who they had watched die and was raised from the grave and had taught them for 40 days about the kingdom of God and had left and said, wait, they're waiting and they want to know exactly what that is about. What do you want to know from God today? What do you want to know about what God is doing in this church, in this fellowship today? And are you willing to gather together and pray with obstinance until you find out what it is? That's what it means to pray. You know what prayer also does? It's a way of battling Satan. (laughs) Satan wasn't getting anywhere near that room. I can promise you. If you think that Satan is not real, then we need to have another discussion about that. But he is real, and he roams around like a, like a lion, ready to devour anyone that he can. And the people that he devours are the ones who have turned their face ever so slightly away from God. Prayer helps us stay in line with God. You cannot avoid God if you are praying to him. He is right there in your face all the time when your face is turned toward His. There's a lot of things that will thwart and oppose the purposes of God in your life, and you can overcome every one of them when you turn to God and say, Watch out for me. He's after me. These things are bringing me down, and I need you to take care of it. I'm a weakling, and I can't do it on my own. And He will do it. In a church, we do the same thing. Every time that a church gets in the right purpose and heading in the right direction under the right guidance with God, Satan comes in and tries to tear it apart. And it doesn't take long till he can find two or three that if he can grab two or three and cause a big enough ruckus, it can tear it apart if the church is not praying together for the very purposes and strength and direction that God has placed them on. When was the last time you were part of a prayer meeting in this church where it was only about what the church's purpose was in the kingdom of heaven and how we were going to accomplish it? Not recently, I take it. Nine o'clock on Sunday mornings, you can. God provides direction through prayer. You know, when you read in the Scriptures, you find out that everything that God gives a person comes through some human type of instrument. He doesn't just, well, I take that back. There's been a couple of times where that was different. Manna did fall from heaven, and so did the quail. Fire fell from heaven when Elijah asked for it. But most everything else that God does, He manages to find a way to do it through a human being. Isn't that something? When we pray, what we're saying is, God, I'm a human being, and I want to be an instrument of what you are doing in the world. Use me. I sometimes think that's what this church was doing. God, Jesus told us to wait. He's promised us this gift from you, and he said it's the Holy Spirit. He says, we're going to pray. I want to be a vessel that, that's going to be filled by that Spirit so that when it arrives, I'm ready. I can do whatever it wants me to do. I will do whatever you want me to do. I'm ready because I'm I'm prepared. Prayer offers preparation for our life to be to be used by God. 
And that's what's happening here. And then we have to remember that God chooses the best time for sending an answer to our prayer. I want to share just a couple of stories from you. I was, I was studying and I came across these stories about people praying. And I want you to listen. In 1857, a quiet 46-year-old businessman, Jeremiah Lamphere, felt led to start a noontime weekly prayer meeting in New York City in which business people could meet in for prayer. Anyone could attend for a few minutes or for the entire hour. On the first day, Lampier prayed um, alone for about a half an hour. But by the end of the six, by the end of the hour, six men from at least four different denominational backgrounds had joined him. Twenty came the next week, and forty the next week after. Soon they decided to meet daily, and the group swelled to over a hundred. Pastors who came started morning prayer meetings in their own churches. Soon similar meetings were being held all over America. Within six months, there were more than 10,000 meetings daily in the New York City area alone. This was the start of what was termed the Great Awakening in North America. It is estimated that in the two-year period, two million people were led to Christ out of a population of 30 million. Because one man decided that he was going to pray and invite people to pray. You ever heard of George Mueller? George Mueller, he ran, a, he ran an orphanage in England for about 175 orphans and he, and he, and he, never, he never asked for money. <laughs> he only prayed. He said, God, I need this today. And uh, God had sent it that day. Furnace went out one time, man, and, and uh, the kids, it was, it was cold. It was like, it was one of those weird London winters where the temperature got down to about zero and these kids were freezing. And, and he said, uh, you know, Lord, I need somebody to fix this furnace. And there was a ship that came into in the town. They, they couldn't leave the harbor because it was icing. And so uh, it just so happened that three guys on this boat were, uh, were, were, were bowler tenders and they came in and fixed the, the furnace that day. But listen to this. this. Go look up George Mueller. Write it down so you don't forget it. Put it in your phone somehow. George Mueller began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. He says, I prayed every day without one single intermission, whether sick or in, in health or on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. After 18 months of such praying, the first of the five was converted. Five years later, the second came. And the third, another after six years. In his sermon, Mueller said that he had been praying for 36 years for the other two. But they still remained unconverted. His biographer says that one of these two became a Christian before Mueller's death and the other a few years later. What value is your prayer to God? You know, part of this persistence that He asks for in prayer is so that we're convinced that our, our will is lined up with His. Our heart is lined up with His. And if it takes Him 36 years to prove that to you, then so be it. He still accomplishes what He wishes to accomplish.
The second thing that we learn from this passage is how to overcome disappointment and defections in the church. I'd never paid a lot of attention to this passage at all about Judas. But when it says, um, <clears throat> in verse 17 it says, For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And I wonder why, why, did he, why does he mention it that way? It does say that, you know, one had to go. It never said it had to be a disciple. But you can almost hear in Peter's voice, he was one of us. They had been with him for over three years. And, you know, Judas had his problems. We see in, in uh, there's, there's one of the Gospels where it talks about how he was maybe taking money from the money bag. You know, he was a treasurer. But they had, a, they had a appointed him treasurer. But you can almost hear in his voice that he was one of us and he shared this, this commonality we'll see later in chapter 2. But this same sharing that they shared with Judas is the same sharing that's going on in the church later. It's the same idea. He was one of them and they were in this together. How could it be that, that one of their own could cause such damage, such harm, not just to Jesus, but to the church, it says later that you know he bought a field with his ill-gotten gains and he wound up dying on that field. We, there's all kind of different ideas about that, but the point of it is, is that everybody in Jerusalem knew about Judas. It says everybody knew what happened. What kind of God chooses a man to be one of his inner circle guys and and and, and allow this to happen? So Peter's heard about it. And he's trying to make sense about it. And in this we discover how he makes sense about it. He goes to Scripture. How do we know what God's up to when things are going sideways in our life? How do we know what God's up to when things are not just right in the church? How do we know? We go to Scripture. And the first thing we find out, the first thing that we often go to about anything in life is that God works for the good of those who are, who are called according to His purpose, right? So tough things happen in churches sometimes. And sometimes that pain and bitterness can become stronger than the Spirit of God working in us. And we forget who we are, not just as Christians, but who we are to one another. And before we know it, the Spirit can't do any work because there's such a, there's such a, 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 a cloud of uncertainty and distrust and bitterness that's going on that may have been caused by just one person that the, that the whole church is paralyzed in this moment. And we learn from this passage that Peter goes to Scripture and learns how to make sense of this. Well, this had to happen, he says. It was necessary for this to happen. God had to have it happen this way. And so when we begin to understand and know that God is at work in it, then we can no longer be bitter about it because God's working in it for the good. And we have to look for the good not only for in the church, but also in the life of the one that, that may have rightly or wrongly been viewed as, as the one causing the problem, the bitterness and anger. We want what's good for everybody if the church is going to be what God has called it 
to be. And so we find ourselves in these times where our relationships suffer and so ministry suffers. And we go to Scripture and we discover that it just doesn't have to be that way. That God had a purpose in it all the while. Maybe the church will be strengthened. Maybe that person is going to be better used to God somewhere else. We don't know what all will happen in it. There is a place at which we trust God in it and we move on. There's been a lot of churches unable to do that. And it's cost them terribly. But if we are wise in our understanding of who God is, and if we are wise in our understanding of how God goes about doing His business, then we can also be comfort, comforted in knowing that He's working for His good. And then finally, it discusses how do we go about making decisions in the church. This thing with having 12 disciples was very important to this particular group of people. They were all Jewish, and they understood that Jesus had selected 12 disciples to match the 12 tribes of Israel. There was also, a, a out of that same thing, that came this, um, uh, it's actually from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that they discovered that there was a priest for every 10 people that were in, that were in, in the tribe. And so when it says 120, about 120, it's believed that uh, Luke may have even been preferring to this tradition where each disciple was to have 10 under them that they were shepherding and bringing near to God. And there was one missing because there was 120 in the room. And so there had to be a 12th, a 12th man, so to speak. And so in this, we also find what is the, what is the proper way to make decisions? <clears throat> Excuse me, because if we want God to work in our church, if we want the spirit to move, then really the spirit has to be allowed to make the decisions. We have to be in tune enough and aware enough to follow that decision making process that God has placed before us. And when we start trying to do it on our own, then where is the room for the spirit to work? There is no room. And so who has to wait? God has to wait. While we try to, we thrash about and flounder about trying to do it our way until we finally get so caught up in the net that God looks at you and He says, now are you through yet? At least that's how I feel. And I look up and I say, well, yeah, can you get me out of this mess? He says, yeah, but man, you're pretty cut up. Because you don't even know it. You're just so busy trying to get it done and get out and do whatever that you really don't even know. And he says, man, we got a lot. We got a lot of work to do here. When it's really much simpler to just turn to God. And that's what they did here. There's some things that we learn. First of all, there's some theological reflection here that goes on. They went to Scripture to find out what they needed to do. They went to Scripture to determine that they needed this 12th man to be a part of this. And it made sense to them because God was speaking to them in that way. What the Bible says about the situation is always the right word. And this Scripture speaks to every situation. 
in our class. We talked about that this morning a little bit, how, you know, sometimes we'll read Scripture and it says one thing, and the next time we go to look at it and it says something completely different that you never saw before, and you're thinking, man, what a dope I was the first time when I read this, that I didn't see that before, and that's really God just exposing to you something new that's in the same place that He needs you to see now that you didn't need to see before. And that's some of what's going on here is that they've read these things a bunch of times, but now they're understanding that this scripture actually applies to this very situation that we are in. And so theological reflection on the place that we are in the life of the church is always needed and always required. We don't just jump into something without first understanding what the Bible has to say about it. That's the first thing we learn. The other thing is that the whole congregation participates. It says, it says they, and the they includes everybody. There's another pronoun for just the 12. It says that they, meaning the whole congregation, decided that these two people should be considered Justice and Matthias. When we get into the business of determining the direction and leadership of the church, it needs to be everybody involved. The minute that the church abdicates that to three or four or five that are in the church, then it becomes much, much harder for the ones that have been chosen. Because now you know what they've got to do? When, when they start to move, the, the, the five or six that are there that make the decision, they're fine with everything, but it's the 90 that aren't there that start questioning everything, and you spend all your time trying to answer questions when if the whole church would have been involved in the decision-making process to begin with, then you wouldn't waste that time and you wouldn't waste that energy. You could get on with the business of what God has the church to do. Okay, so this is a lesson for you here. When I say there's a business meeting after church and you all get up and leave, don't come asking questions afterwards about what happened. And what are we going to do next? And I don't like that. Because my answer is going to be, you should have stayed for the business meeting. Because it's more than just business. A business meeting is the life of the church. You're, you're, you're doing God's business in that minute. You know? It's serious. They took this, they took this situation very seriously when they were selecting these guys. It sounds like a game because at the end of it, they're, they're casting lots to determine. But all the lots was, but they had these equally qualified guys, and they prayed before they cast the lots. I want you to pay attention to that. Again, we find out that they're praying. Peter gives them direction as to what needs to happen. He presents his case through Scripture, and then the congregation acts. He teaches them as to what needs to happen. You know what I found in this too? Over in 2 Timothy 3, we always run to 2 Timothy 3 to find out who should be qualified to lead a church. And there's some uh, character things there and there's some family things there. But there's only one ministerial requirement listed in 2 Timothy 3 about what needs to be in a person's life in order to lead a church, and that is to teach. I had no idea. I stand here and preach every week, and it's not even required. The teaching is necessary. 
is a necessary thing for people to understand the Word of God and the will of God that comes through prayer and other means so that they can act upon what they have been taught. And that's what happens here. <clears throat> so we find our place to this. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which two of these, which of the two of these you have chosen. Before they ever make a decision, they want to know the heart of the man. You know who, you know who truly knows the heart of a man or a woman? God. You can fool me every day. You can fool one another every day. God knows. And they wanted to make sure that, that their decision-making process, the people, the people that were involved in leading their church, in leading their fellowship to care for them, to teach them, to nurture them, to guide them. They wanted to be sure that that person's heart was right with God. More than anything else, there's no other qualifications listed here other than they've been with us since John's baptism of Jesus to the day that he ascended. That was their qualification and that their heart be aligned with God. And so they prayed and they cast lots and they trusted as sure as the sun rises that those lots would fall right because God would make them so, so that they could make the right choice. So we find in this that we pray for the right person, we pray for the right circumstances, we pray that whatever we do as a church, that it is in line with the heart of God each and every step of the way. Because see, the work that we do, the work that the church does is primarily spiritual. That's the work that we do. We may go put a roof on somebody's house, but the primary work is spiritual. We may bring kids to Bible school in the summer and have all kind of games and play and all that, but the primary work that we're doing is spiritual. Wednesday night, we are in a spiritual awakening with our children. I want you to hear me. There's some wonderful things going on with our children on Wednesday night and with our students. We've got this little handful, and they're hungry. the spiritual nature of what we do we can't ever we can't ever sidestep or soft soap that very fact when it gets right down to it everything about your life in relation to God and his church is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ so that every not not one is lost so that we may all stand before him that's our job if you're uncomfortable with that then we, we need to spend a lot of more time together encouraging you and strengthening you and teaching you just how important this is. And it is what you were made for as you were born again in Christ Jesus. We are spiritual people. That's who we are. Now my personal opinion about this, and I get one, you so do you is that that's what these people wanted more than anything. 
They wanted to be like Jesus. They had seen him work miracles. They had seen him speak words and people just melt with their arguments and come to believe him. Gosh, they had heard him say, if you hear me speak, you're hearing my father speak. If I do something, you're seeing my father do it. They wanted to be that way. And when their hearts were in line with what that meant for them with God, that his spirit was poured out. I'm asking you, what do you want for your life? What do you truly want? What do you truly want with this life with God? Okay? We can, we can put God in a box very, quite easily and He'll meet all our needs in this little bitty box. But if you want the big God that pours out His Spirit upon your life and causes you to do things that are unexplainable for Him and to bring people to Christ, then you got to get out, you got to get Him out of the box. I think these people prayed their way out of the box. I really truly do. I think they were expecting something. When Jesus said that He's going to send a gift, and you, I think they were expecting something wonderful, something bigger than they had ever experienced before. And they went through all these steps to make sure that their heart was right. Is your heart right for the Spirit of God to work in your life? Let's pray.